The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to The Dark Word. Uh, Very excited today to have Christopher Golden on the show. Uh, Christopher is a New York Times bestselling Bram Stoker award-winning author of such novels as Road of Bones, Ararat, Snowblind, and Red Hands. With Mike Mignola, he is the co-creator of the Outerverse comic book universe, including series such as Baltimore, Joe Gollum, Occult Detective, and Lady Baltimore. As an editor, he has worked on the short story anthology Seize the Night, Dark Cities, and The New Dead, among others. He has written and co-written comic books, video games, screenplays, and a network television pilot. His work has been nominated for the British Fantasy Award, the Eisner Award, and multiple Shirley Jackson Awards. For the Bram Stoker Awards, Golden has been nominated 10 times in 8 different categories and won twice. His original novels have been published in more than 15 languages and countries around the world. Trust me when I say Christopher knows what he's talking about. And I should note, I wanted to make sure that we just announced today, Christopher has an annual author reader festival called the Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival. Christopher, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Philip. I really appreciate it. So there's a lot to talk about with you and in a small period of time, but I want to start by asking something I always ask my guests, which is what was your first professional publishing experience? And and what did you take from that experience that you would say was something that was positive and maybe something that was negative and you don't have to name names if you don't want to? Sure. Uh, well, it's been so long. I mean, I've been doing this full-time this year will be 30 years as a full-time writer. Amazing. Um, so I'm 54 I quit my job shortly before my 25th birthday. I guess my, my well, I mean, my first experience with large publishing, um, with mainstream publishing, was actually a nonfiction book, which was an anthology of essays about horror movies called Cut Horror Writers on Horror Film. And it was exactly what it sounds like. It was a, a, an anthology of essays by horror writers about horror movies. And that was uh, picked up by Ginger Buchanan, who uh, was at Berkeley Books at the time, Ace Berkeley, part of Penguin. I don't remember if they were even part of Penguin yet at that point. They've been, you know, it's been a long time. And um, the opportunities that came from that were huge. You know, I'd already met a bunch of horror writers, um, mostly because I went to Nikon. Uh, in 1989, right after I graduated from college, I went to my first, that was my first sort of long convention. I'd been to Bosco and I think once prior to that, but I'd met so many of my literary horror heroes at that event. But with Cut, um, I had essays by so many amazing writers, uh, but I also had a couple of experiences where, for instance, I had interviewed Clive Barker for something and I'd asked him if he would be willing 
you know, I, I needed a couple of big names in order to get Berkeley to buy the book. Sure. And Clive was incredibly kind, uh, as he always has been in all my experiences with him. And he said, um, I don't know if I'll be able to write an essay, but if it helps you to sell the book, put my name in and we'll figure something out. Hmm. You know, that was just uh, amazing of him. Yeah. And that was during his, that was kind of during his, I wouldn't say peak, but definitely when he was a hot, hot commodity. He was- it was definitely at the, uh, at a point where he was incredibly hot in a yeah. Heart. Yeah. But in any case, cut won uh, the Stoker Award for nonfiction that year. So that was uh, that was one of my two wins that you mentioned uh, was my very first book, and it was nonfiction. So it was um, it was amazing. You know, it was an amazing experience. But it also gave me not a bad experience, but a lot of insight into how you have to think about it if you want to publish mainstream. And what what do you mean by that? You mean in the sense that you have to have like. Okay, I got to have a couple ringers. I have to understand that it's a business. Yeah, I mean, because I came from the licensing world, I came from magazine publishing. When I graduated from college, I worked at the company that owned Billboard magazine, and I I worked in licensing and communications there. And so I knew contracts and I knew uh, some something about publishing and uh and I had a business sense at that point. And so I looked at it and I understood why Ginger needed what she needed in order to get them to bite on this project in-house. And I understood early on that it's a business. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you can write the best thing you, you can write or the thing that inspires you the most, but you also have to find somebody who is excited by that and feels like there's a way for them to sell it. Uh, I've had books fail because at the last minute, the publisher's marketing department said, you know, we just don't know how to sell this. So up until that moment, there was there was money behind it. There was excitement behind it. And then at the last minute, they decided to put their marketing efforts behind somebody else's book because they weren't quite sure what the message was that they needed to put out from a marketing point of view to try to get the book to be a hit. Right. Which is a little unusual when you say, I'm saying that based on my own limited experience, because part of, I think what they look at when they acquire a book right now is, you know, can we market it? Do we have a clear message for sales? So that's kind of unusual that they would come in sort of at the 11th hour after the book's been purchased. Well, I mean, I have to, let's be clear about this. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've published uh, over a hundred books and uh, it is almost in my lengthy experience, it is incredibly rare for the publisher to expend the efforts of their marketing and publicity departments beyond what is typical. You know what I mean? So for them to get to get them to go to make your book a priority, most of the books they publish are not a priority. It's just the way it is. Because there's only so many titles they can focus on or put their money, their well, budget. No, there are only so many titles they're going to treat as their lead titles that yeah. they can spend real money promoting and put real effort behind. And you know that's why there's a long conversation to be had about advances and how much money, uh, you know, is in weird in a weird way. How much money is too much money? Right, <laughs> right. You know, um, because. Uh, you know, I've seen writers whose careers have taken a big nosedive because they were paid a lot of money in an advance and the books did not perform well enough to earn that advance. Right. You know, the books did really well, but not well enough. And so suddenly, instead of coming back to them and saying, well, we want to basically demote you, they get sort of abandoned in a weird way. 
And in fact, that's what happened with this one book in particular of mine. So I'm not that I got paid as much as the people I'm talking about, but you know, it's, it's just an interesting business. So I think my point is that learning to understand the dynamics of the business, I think is, is important and it, it will absolutely help. The more you understand it, uh, the better you, you will be able to navigate it uh, your, and, and also manage your expectations. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And I was talking to Ayadal Makatsu on, and she was very much about the business of publishing fiction. And, you know, she talked about how her books are actually, she works with a, a group who, by, by a group, I mean, she works with like an agent and these two uh, women who own a uh, an agency and they kind of come up with the ideas together for what she's going to write about, you know, and then Alma writes the novel and the agents start are already off and running selling the concept for film and TV. And one thing, the thing you mentioned about advances is interesting too, because and I don't want to make this about me, but I, but just for, for sake of the people listening, like I recently, you know, had my first big five deal. I got it in advance and my agent was mentioned, you know, in conversation, Hey, well, you know, maybe for the next, if these do well, maybe for the next books, you'll get a better advance. And my response was, I don't know if I want a better advance. Like that's kind of good. Like, because to your point, I don't want to get something where I, you know, I'm doing the numbers in my head. It's like, well, I know how many they're going to have to sell to make that back. Right. I have an idea. And the last thing I want is for them to feel like they didn't make their money back and now they don't want me versus, okay, well, you didn't do, it didn't do gangbusters, but we made our money back. So let's do another one. Right. Is that an, is that an appropriate train of thought in your, I mean, I think it's not, you're not far off. I mean, you know, my situation has been very different uh, than most because again, over the course of my career, I've published so many different books, but for the last eight years, all of my major books have been published by St. Martin's. So just focusing on St. Martin's, for instance, I have had, a, you know, like Snowblind was a modest hit. The next book, Dead Ringers, was a massive failure. Then the next book was Ararat, which was a, definitely a bigger hit than Snowblind mm-hmm. and won the Stoker and, and sold bigger numbers and sold to more places around the world. And then the book that followed that, and there's a reason for it was the Pandora Room, which was a failure, and then in, in, in sales wise, I was about to say, so, yeah, it's a great book. Thank you. And then Red Hands came out, and it was did better than the Pandora Room, but it was a, a pandemic book, basically, in a pandemic. So it definitely had a handicap going in. So it didn't do great. And now we have Road of Bones, which is doing really, really well. So it's a it's an interesting pattern, and so mm-hmm. getting the publisher to continue to commit when you have such a a roller coaster of a track record sales wise is difficult. And so I would not go back to them and say, "Hey, by the way, you know, Rhoda Bones did really well. I want more money." Right. So the books that earn out and that that make money, I have not gone back to them and asked for more. The only way I would do that. Um, is if I go back or if my agent would go back and say, this book did way better than you anticipated. If it's a massive success versus a modest success, then I think you should do that. Um, you're, You're kicking yourself if you don't. Or if you've had a track record of consistently earning out and, and, and making the money and all of this stuff. Part of the reason you want to do that, if you're consistently doing well, 
is because the more they pay you, the more they have to spend to get their money back. Right. Interesting. The more they have to promote your book. But the problem with that is that if they, again, without naming names, I knew a writer who'd made a four book deal, got $100,000 a book for four books. And this was 25 years ago. It was a big investment. And the first book did, you know, did well, but it wasn't a home run. And even though they'd invested all that money in the author, they really didn't put a lot of effort and support into the subsequent books. And then when the contract was done, they were done with him. And he had to, you know, take a massive cut and go elsewhere, you know, and that's just the way it is. So uh, I don't know. It's just it's 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 all about trying to navigate your relationship with whoever the publisher is to get them to give you all the support you can. Um, I come I come to them with ideas all the time, but of course the ideas they like the most for marketing and publicity are the ones that don't cost them anything, you know. And the thing is, the I should say the marketing and publicity people are fantastic. You know, I mean, I I, I love working with them. They're all incredibly supportive. But, you know, they have their marching orders. They know what they can and can't do, the time and money that they can expend on each book. You know, so it's always a process. So, again, I would say if you're starting out and you don't really have much of a track record and you have a book that comes out and it does, you know, well, you know, then you definitely want to ask them for more money the next time. Yeah. And I think the interesting point you mentioned is the balance is, you want them to be as committed to the success of the book as you are. And when they give you a nice advance, they have to, they have to put some money behind it because they've got to make their money back. Um, but yeah, and it, it is, I remember I was, I was just talking to Paul and he said this in the podcast, so I'm, I, it's okay to repeat it. He said, um, you know, his second book, uh, a head full of ghosts was, was a, was a moderate hit and the Stephen King tweeting about it and everything. And that was a part of a two book deal. And the second book, uh, disappearance of devil's rock, he said, didn't earn out. But, you know, they still gave him another book deal. So I think there is that, to your point, there's a balance of getting what you want or getting what you deserve or what you need based on your track record, but also making sure, you know, and finding that balance between making sure they're spending enough so that they're putting a message behind it and making sure they're spending enough so that you can live, but not so much that you can't, that they're going to like take a bath if, if it goes south. Right. I mean, the thing is like right now, you know, with Road of Bones, getting the attention that it's gotten. A lot of authors might think, well, this is an opportunity for me to go out and shop myself around to other publishers and try to move publishers and get a bigger advance and more commitment. And, you know, I guess if you're new, that's probably not a bad idea. But again, I've been doing this a really long time and I really value my relationship with St. Martin's and with my editor there, Michael Homler, who's been incredibly supportive. He's a big fan of my work. And they've been, they've been great and open and looking for uh, things to do, you know, looking for ways to continue when things weren't going that well. So when things are going well, you know, I, t- I take into consideration the commitment they've shown in the past and the commitment in particular that Michael has shown in the past. And so if I went elsewhere and I, I did a book and it did poorly, they're more than likely just going to drop me. Right. Because right. we don't have that history. They haven't seen what can be done with my work. You know what I mean? So, um, so I'm not keen on going anywhere. Well, it's nice to have a home. One thing I've taken away from a, the, having the conversations I've had with so many amazing successful writers is the relationship of the writer and the editor. And 
you know, what I think is interesting probably for new writers is that, you know, that editor who acquires your book and who holds your hand through that process of manuscript to finished product, that's a pretty serious relationship. And I've had, I've, I've talked to writers who where if that editor leaves that publisher, they will follow the editor. Uh, I've talked to publishers, I'm sorry, writers where they will have a book acquired by an editor and then that editor will leave, you know, early in the process. And it's a kind of a nightmare, right? Because they kind of throw you at an editor who hasn't, who hasn't invested in your, in you or your book. Yeah. I had a situation um, years ago, Tim Levin and I did some young adult sort of dark fantasy books and the editor acquired the books and then left the publishing company. And basically once he was, situated at his new job, he contacted his old boss and said, you don't really care about these books. Do you have an objection if I try to bring them here? And his old boss was like, no, that's fine. You'll do better with them than we will. And so it was all arranged that we basically like that they basically paid the new publisher, paid the old publisher to move the books over to stay with the editor who first bought them. That's a rarity. And that's a big deal because they're you're talking about committing to i'm assuming a new design for the covers or you know it hadn't it hadn't gotten that far yet we had, we, we were just writing the first book at the time oh, uh-huh. that, that happened and by the way the, the 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 books didn't sell so it doesn't matter but but the point was at the time the editor was really dedicated to them yeah and i have had that i have had experience where i was with one publisher this is obviously more on the independent side of things and i had a book published and then that publisher for whatever reason I took my rights back and uh, went to a different publisher who committed to a new design and a new cover, basically a reissue. Um, have you had that happen on the in your with some of your books where you've kind of reissued them with new publishers on the you know? It, it, have you had that experience? I'm sure you have. Yeah, I mean, I have. I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, I guess the best examples. My first novel of Saints and Shadows that turned into a series of books that lasted seven books and over the course of many years. Uh, eventually I got the rights back from Berkeley or Penguin and reissued them all with Journal Stone, which is a small or moderate sized press, um, because I wanted them all to be in print at the same time with a, uh, a unified cover treatment and all of that stuff. And it had never happened. So sure, I did that. And um, uh, mostly what I've done is I've taken my I have a sizable backlist. Many of those books are are out of print. A lot of the books that are out of print are out of print at my request because they were just ticking over older books that had run their course and you know the publisher wasn't doing anything with them. And I would ask for the rights back. And I've slowly been rolling them out with Haverhill House, which is a very small press owned by my buddy John McElveen here in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where I live. Um, and we get beautiful covers that I arrange and all that stuff. I have total control over what the product is. Right. Um, and I do that mainly because um, I want the books to be available for those people who want to get a copy of the book uh, so that they aren't tempted to pirate them. Right, right. Because to me, book pirates are criminals and thieves and I hate them. <laughs> right. They're taking money off our, out of our pockets. Yeah. And the thing is, like, they would say, uh, well, we wouldn't buy the book anyway. Well, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's literally no different from stealing it from my car. Right. Um, you know, and it's, you know, so so if I had a copy of my car and you stole it, it means I can't sell it at a at a, a festival or something like that. 
you know, it, it's no different. But anyway, the point is that I want these books to be in print because there are people who are looking for them, who want them. And, and I want to make sure that they're available um, for those people. And I love them, you know. Um, so there are a bunch more of those that are going to be coming over the next year or two, books that have been out of print. And I love doing that. I love seeing them in new covers. Yeah. And you're kind of, you're kind of making your own deal too. It's, 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 there's something that's the, you know, I think when people talk about self-publishing, one of the, not that you're self-publishing, you have this partner, but my point is that when I think what people say it's nice about it is one, you, you're kind of, you make your own deal, meaning you keep, you know, you, you, whatever your royalty is, it's, it's probably better than 10% that most publishers offer. And you have, to your point, you have full control, which is, that's no small thing. Like it's, it's, it's a nice, and I think, I think that's something for writers to hear as well is there's something really comforting about knowing that whatever, for better or for worse, failure or, or success, what's out there is some, is what you want out there. It's, right. it's your, it's the cover you approved. It's the, you know, the interior layout you approved. It's the, the words you approved. And I think that there's something really comforting and special about that. Well, I think cause, cause writers, um, especially when you are dealing with bigger publishers, you don't really have that kind of control. You basically are somewhat at the, the will of the, the marketing team and the sales team and stuff like that. Yeah. And it also means that the books that you don't want out there are not out there anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that's for someone who has the catalog that you have, I imagine there's like, yeah, you know what? That one's okay to kind of let's just keep that in the drawer. I, I want to get to so much stuff, but let's talk about quickly your experience as a editor and anthology editor. I've talked to Lisa Morton. I've talked to Ellen Datlow and I find it really fascinating to hear different perspectives on this because I think with Ellen, it's kind of what she does. It's her, you know, what she does for a living. So she, she pitches uh, these publishers and then she has to go out and get these, you know, X amount of quote unquote name authors so that the publisher can sell the, feels comfortable selling the book. How do you typically work when you are either high? Are you typically hired to edit an anthology or do you ever go out and pitch an anthology? Um, I've gone out and pitched all but one. Okay. And that was one that came to me. Um, and that was years ago. That was actually the new dead. It was just a sort of a, a little germ of an idea that they approached me with. But yeah, I do go out and pitch and I've, I've managed to sell all but one or two, I think, of the of the things that I've pitched for for anthologies. But I got to tell you, I think that unless you're Ellen Datlow, it is so hard to convince any publisher to publish any anthology, any mainstream publisher, I should say. And then when you do, it is like I go to the publisher publishers with here is the concept, here is the list of people who've already agreed to contribute, and if I'm pitching mainstream publishing. That list includes at least four or five New York Times bestselling authors because in their brains, they're trying to figure out how they're going to market it, how they're going to publicize it, right. how are they going to get people to pay attention to it. Um, and it's it's very interesting to me. Rachel Autumn Deering and I edited an anthology a few years ago called Hex Life, New Tales of Wicked Witchery or something like that. And it was uh, all female authors, uh, all writing various takes on witches and witchcraft. And the cover was great and Titan published it and they did really well with it. It was very successful. It's still still selling, still doing well. But one of the things they wanted, and this is no offense to Titan, but one of the things they wanted is that they wanted the authors who were in it who had significantly successful series, which are mostly sort of the dark fantasy slash 
dark, you know, fiction authors who were in it, like Kelly Armstrong, for instance, who's a friend of mine, fantastic writer. Um, they wanted those authors to write stories set in their existing worlds because to them, they felt like that was going to be the selling point. And while I do think that that probably shifted a number of copies of that book, I don't think it's the selling point that they think it is. Right. I don't think it sold as many copies as they think it did. I could be completely wrong. I confess that up front. But to me, I think the concept and the lineup is what sold that book and the cover. Right. Um, and I think that people who are excited to read a Kelly Armstrong story or Charlene Harris story aren't necessarily just coming for the existing worlds. But I also think that it puts handcuffs on those writers, you know, it sort of limits what they can do. Right. I don't know. That's just my two cents. Well, I, t- I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'll tell you my two cents as a reader is that when I see an anthology and it has like a, a Jonathan Mayberry story from, and it's from his universe or to continue. I was in a couple of anthologies where a couple of the stories were, you know, they were from their existing universes. And for me, it was as a reader, it was sort of like, eh, you know, I don't know those books. You know, I, I, I do want to read these story. I do want to read this author's short story about this topic, like demons or whatever it is, but I don't know those books. So I don't know. Is that going to mm-hmm. be, that, that's, that's less interesting to me. Right. I mean, Jonathan has a, Jonathan has an agenda there right. from a, uh, a publishing and marketing standpoint is that he tries his best actually to write stories from one of his existing series for various anthologies, because the more he does that, then eventually if he's got 14 of those, he could put out a short story collection of stories set in that world. Right. Which he just did recently. Yeah. And again, like it's, it's a brilliant approach from that perspective for Jonathan and he turns out great stories, but I don't like the idea that publishers are going to try to require it because again, like for me, not that uh, a story by one of those authors is going to be not as good if it's in one of those worlds. But to me, it's sort of like, you know, if I want to ask Kelly to write a story, I want to write, I want Kelly to write a story because I think Kelly is a really talented writer and has great ideas and a great imagination. So I don't want to say, Kelly, I want you to write a story, but it's got to be a story set in this world to take advantage of the marketing potential of that. Right. Because I also think that that makes that author less uh, invested in what they're writing, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's even consciously or subconsciously, I, su- I suspect that you feel less valued for your writing, for your imagination, than for your previous successes. Right, right. And it may be a, a world you're, you know, done with. You know, it might be like, I've, mm-hmm. I've written that story and I don't want to write yeah. that story. I want to move quickly to, um, I want to talk about your comic book experience because you have so much experience on the comic book side You've written comics for like X-Men and Hellboy and Blade and Joe Gollum, the series, which is an original series, I believe, that you you crafted with Mike. Could you explain to writers who might be listening and who might be interested in getting into the comic book writing side of things? Can yeah. you explain a little bit how that works as a as a as a writer? Oh, good God. Uh well, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> you, can, you can bull you can bullet point. I just like how did you get into it? We'll go, maybe we'll go that way. No, that's a longer story. Here's, <laughs> here's what I will say about writing comics. Okay. Number one, it's its own uh, very distinct discipline and format, and you have to learn it 
just because you could write a screenplay or a novel or a short story doesn't mean you know how to write comics. Mm-hmm. Um, so right off the bat, so many people assume that they know how to do it or know, but it, it's got its own discipline, its own format. You must learn it. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is the best thing you could possibly do is team up with an artist and create a comic. Right. Because, uh, you know, figuring out a way to get into comics is very difficult. You think it's hard to crack the top, the, the big five publishers as a prose writer? Um, you know, getting into comics is so difficult. I stopped writing comics for years at a certain point and only got back into writing them because of things that I was working on with Mike Mignola. And even now, almost all the comics I do are books that I do with Mike. Uh, because when you're working with Mike, you basically can do anything you want. I mean, anything Mike wants. Right. You know, so because he's Mike Mignola, you have that freedom. So it's not like you need to be smashing your head against the wall that you have to do with so many other publishers, whether it's to write existing characters at Marvel or DC or to try to sell a creator-owned thing to Image or Dark Horse or whatever. There are ways, but I would say just like book publishing. Now that the world is opening up again, go to conventions, meet professionals in the business, writers, artists, editors, get to know them, create real relationships, not fake ones, not we're not pretending to like people we don't actually like. And you can learn from them and you could observe, learn from observing them as well. And, you know, hopefully that helps you. I think that's really the best way. Yeah. It's so, it's like sometimes when you, you know, these days when someone says, well, I want to be a film director or whatever, it's like, you know, some, I was talking to some people who wanted to make movies and I said, the best thing you can do is go make a movie. Like at this, in today's world, you can go, go make a five minute movie, put you know, put it up on YouTube or Venmo or whatever, right. or not Venmo, the, whatever the video version of that is. And yeah, yeah. And, get, and get it out there and get, it's kind of like making it back in the eighties and nineties is like when a band would make a demo tape, you know, it's like, get your, get your creative, right. get your vision out there. And so that's interesting that you would say, cause it is, I know it's um incredibly cost prohibitive to do a comic because you know, uh, the artist. Uh, and illustrators, you know, you have to, they all have to get paid and it's a lot of work as, and as well as the writer has to get paid. Yeah, but if you can find an artist who is talented, but also trying to break in and you right. can team up with that artist and, and you co-own that material with the artist, then you're both risking. Now the artist is definitely risking more because they're putting in more time than you did by far, but those are the, you know, the ways to do it, you know, right. Just, you gotta go make comics. Yeah. And yeah, cause comics, when you're writing a comic, it's like, you are also in, in a way you're sort of, um, and I, I haven't written any comics, but I've, I read a book about writing comics, which may or may not be accurate, but you're sort of directing in a way or you're kind of like describing here's the dialogue and here's what's sort of happening in this frame. Yeah. And, but you also have to be willing to have a give and take with the artist and let them right. give you what they have creatively as well. You know? Right. Right. And um, you've also written tie-ins for how many Buffy books do you think you've written? I mean, it's been years. So one of the books I did was a, f- a four-part serial novel called The Lost Slayer. So when I say I wrote 13 Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels, I don't remember if I'm counting that as four separate books. I think I probably am. Okay. Um, so, But I think I wrote 13 Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels. I wrote three Buffy uh, nonfiction books. 
dozens of comics in Buffy and Angel, both video games with Tom Snagoski and a bunch of other stuff. And in fact, there's a, a secret Buffy project I'm working on right now that I can't talk about. What? You're not going to drop it on my podcast? Come on. No, no, I would be sued. Oh, well, <laughs> it'd still be great press. So the, um, so the, so the tie-ins, cause I was talking to Tim Wagner about it and I know that you've done a, a bunch of tie-ins and I know uh, your buddy, Tim Lebin has done tie-in work. What advice could you give to writers? Who, is that just a thing where you just meet Again, to your point earlier, where you just have to get out there and meet people and make a name for yourself and start putting out feelers, like if you want to do this kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I have an agent. Um, I know a lot of editors. Right. Uh, I make my passions public. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have connected a lot of writers myself to editors so that they could pursue the tie-in work that they're passionate about. Or I've been offered things that I wasn't interested in or didn't have time to do that I've then sort of like promoted other writers to those editors to try to get them to get those gigs. But to my mind, it's like, it is very difficult to get hired to write a tie-in if you haven't written original novels. Right, right. Because that's kind of your resume in a way. Right. So people think like, oh, I I just want to write this. Well, yeah, that's great. But what editor in their right mind is going to hire an untried person to come into an existing world and try to hit a home run with somebody else's characters? Right. You know, you have to prove you can write a novel with a beginning, middle and an end and write it well and be and be, per, you know, persuasive. Y- your passion for the characters doesn't matter unless they know you can do the job. Right. So that's that's number one. And then number two is just sort of like establishing a reputation, you know. So if you have a reputation, a good reputation, both as a talented writer, but also as somebody who delivers on time, um, who is reliable, then if you know that a property is out there, you could contact the editor or you can, if you don't have an agent, you can contact the editor. Maybe if you do, you can get them to reach out and say, listen, this client of mine loves this character or this, this world, you know, that's how it happens. You know, so many people have thought, have, have contacted me over the years saying like, how do I get the rights to do this? And right. I'm like, that's not how it works. The publisher gets the rights and they hire writers. Yeah. It's essentially a work for hire. I assume it is. That's exactly what it is. But, you know, people who are not aware sometimes think that they themselves individually, some random person off the street can get in touch with Fox and license Die Hard and write a Die Hard novel. That's not how it works. Right. Well, you know, I always like to kind of end these things with, uh, with book suggestions for, for writers. Uh, there are books either about the business or about the craft that maybe you've dog-eared or that you would recommend? Yeah. I mean, the first thing obviously is On Writing by Stephen King. I think it's invaluable. There's a book that's long out of print, but you can probably find copies on Abe Books um, that was writ- that was actually written by Dean Koontz like 30-something years ago, probably 40 years ago, called How to Write Best-Selling Fiction, which I thought was actually quite useful despite the fact that um, Koontz apparently like snapped up all the copies and would not put it back in print. Interesting. Um, I think learning how to write the screenplay, Sid Field's book on the screenplay is great because it teaches you structure. Right. Um, and then look, I'm going to, I'm not going to lie to you. The most important book that every writer should own. And when Jim Moore and I did seminars and classes, we would on, you know, becoming a better writer, we would force everybody to buy the book and read it cover to cover and study it is Elements of Style by Strunk and White. It is amazing to, to me. Like, you know, they say like 
you have author's license, it means you could break the rules. You don't have to follow the rules of grammar. But look, you still have to know them. Right. You know, the only way to break the rules and make it sound good and, and write effectively is if you know you're breaking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, look, this doesn't this doesn't apply to everyone. But if you're listening to this, I guarantee you that it applies to you. And that's the thing, you know, that that drives me crazy is people will send you things and you're just like, wow, <laughs> right. go study the mechanics. Right. Just learn your mechanics. Yeah. I mean, it can it can be instinctual, but you I can't remember which guest, but we were talking about the, the Blake Snyder Save the Cat book and and sort of the John Truby 22 beats, you know, and I was saying how I mentioned this to to writers, to your point, it's a great way to learn story structure, you know, whether it's the Sid Field book or it's the Robert McKee book or, or the Blake Snyder book. I said, and they're always like, no, I don't want to be constricted. You know, I don't want to be constricted in my art. And it's like, it's not constricting, man. It's like, it's just teaching you the rules, whether you follow those rules or not is up to you, but at least you know what the rules are. Right. And also like you have a driver's license, I assume, and you couldn't go into the, the registry of motor vehicles today and pass that test, but you've <laughs> absorbed all of the information at some point. Right. So you have a basic understanding. You have the knowledge that you can, it's in your toolbox and you can take it out or leave it in there depending on the day and how you feel at that time. The same thing is true about the books you're talking about that teach structure, but also about elements of style, which which teaches you basically the rules. You know, and I think that like when I graduated from college, I, I got my first agent, and the first thing she did was to to say, Go buy a copy of The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, You've been in school too long. I can I, I I see all the all the errors that you make over and over again. Uh, and you need to teach yourself not to make those mistakes because the writer will be clearer. You know, you want clarity and crispness and people to be able to follow you easily and not bump over the things that are there. I'll tell you the three books I have on my desk. I have Strunk and White, Elements of Style, Dreyer's English by Benjamin Dreyer. I don't know if you've read that one. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, English Composition and Grammar, (laughs) which is a textbook. Uh, My go-tos when I get stuck. Well, Chris, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. So thank you to Chris and thank you guys uh, for listening and stay safe until the next time on The Dark Word. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.